Thank you for joining us again to hear this, the second episode in our Pottery Cottage Murders series. Last time we heard how Billy Hughes had committed two serious offences against a young couple. He was remanded to prison and on one of his frequent journeys from the prison to court, he attacked the two prison officers who were escorting him. Billy ordered them out of the vehicle and drove off alone before crashing on Bealey Moor above Chatsworth House in Derbyshire. In this episode, we'll be telling you what Billy did next and how he finds himself at the front door of Pottery Cottage. Once Billy dropped off the taxi driver and the prison officers and took off in their car, that Michael Jalavu came along and reported to the police that he'd found these people at the side of the road and then he carried on with his his day at the, the Red Lion. But we do know that other people actually stopped and saw these three at the side of the road and rendered some first aid and also they themselves alerted the police to what was happening and we know that those people I think there was somebody that worked for the GPO and there was a couple of people that worked for the Seven Trent Water Authority and I think it was one of those people that actually released the two prison officers because Billy had had the cuffs taken off him and one of the prison officers so that he could actually handcuff the two prison officers together. Yeah, I mean, he would have got the keys off one of them, whoever was carrying the keys to the handcuffs, and had the presence of mind to slow them up from alerting anybody to cuff them together. Of course, when the people, as you described, turned up, they were workmen and work vans, so they had bolt croppers on board and bolt cropped the handcuffs apart and freed them. They were very lucky that quite a few people because of the time of day I suppose at first thing in the morning people travelling around that they got help fairly quickly and the ambulance and the police arrived and obviously the ambulance took away the two injured prison officers and they had emergency surgery to those very serious wounds to their neck and one of them to, to his hand and palm I mean we've seen photographs haven't we where one of them particularly is the gash in his neck is quite substantial and it was quite remarkable that they didn't suffer real serious consequences and even die but medical attention helped them out fairly quickly and saved the life. Looking at the extent of the injuries John on the photographs that we have seen it is really amazing that the surgery that they underwent at Chesterfield Royal Hospital just saved their lives. And it outlines the savagery that Billy was willing to inflict on anybody that stood in his way to get away and escape. He could well have just held them the knife to one of the throats and say, if you don't let me out, I'm going to do something, but he didn't. He struck twice, didn't he, without warning, and inflicted horrendous injuries. And I think, as we'll learn as we go on, that was something that was in Billy's nature. But before we consider what happened at Pottery Cottage, I think we just need to look at some obvious questions that the listeners may be thinking to themselves and the first one that comes to mind is why was Billy Hughes in a position to be able to commit those serious offences against those two prison officers and facilitate his escape? I think we need to know where he came from. He was born in August 1946 in Preston in Lancashire and he was the eldest of six children and he was in trouble from a very early age and I know I've looked at his list of previous convictions and a lot of his convictions are around dishonesty so thefts and burglaries but they're also around really serious violence. We've had the opportunity to research newspaper articles and and books and other things about Billy Hughes and Without making a broad brush statement, he fits a typical working class family, doesn't he? With quite a number of children, with not a lot of money in the household. And of course, they then spin into crime and trouble and that doesn't stop, does it? That seems to be what started him on his offending. I think you'd describe him as a drinker and a fighter. Yeah, and of course, going back to 76, it was just the start when drugs were being obtained and experimented with. So you've got like a toxic mix, haven't you? You've got somebody who's not the brightest person in the world with poor background, little money, drinking 
and out of control, really. That's what he was. He was out of control. And he'd also spent time in Borstal, which was a breeding ground for meeting like-minded people, really. I mean, the idea of Borstals in the day was, of course, the schools couldn't cope with them or they didn't go to school. And before they went to an adult prison, it was a chance, possibly to set them on a road of the straight and narrow, isn't it? That didn't work for Billy. That didn't work for Billy and a lot of others because it just brought him in contact with other people of like minds and we made more contacts. That's the sadness of it. And of course, when he's out, he starts again, doesn't he? Yeah, and in 1971, he's moved out of Preston and he's gone to live in Blackpool and that's where he meets Jean Nadin, who subsequently becomes his wife within a matter of months. She's already got a child, a little girl called Tracy. And as the relationship progresses, they have their own daughter, Nicola Jane, who's born in August of 1972. Looking at Billy's previous convictions and those violent previous convictions, he was actually sent to prison for six months for assaulting Tracy. Well, she was just a little girl. She was just a child. But such were his violent tendencies that it proliferated throughout the family. I mean, we know that he was responsible for causing some injury to Jean. And then we also know that he had this previous conviction for assaulting Tracy. And I think it's fair to say that he was well known to the Lancashire police for his behaviour and for his violent tendencies. I mean, the newspaper articles we've seen, and of course the police, he was no stranger to the police in Lancashire, who in the articles we've read, several of them, and one in particular, describes that him and his brother held a big street fight against several police officers who weren't small guys, they were big cops in those days, that erupted into like a violent street fight where, as one of the police officers said, as soon as we knocked them to the ground, they got up and started fighting again. And of course, in those days, they didn't have any tasers, CS gas, hasps, didn't carry guns. So it was street fighting like something out of the Wild West, really. One in particular says that it was getting out of control and the police were losing in in many respects, that when he was on the floor, he, he landed a blow and kicked Billy in the head and he got up and kept fighting. They've got this very strong will, fueled by other things, drink or whatever. And the, that's on a, a newspaper report. They admitted that that's what the officer had done, that he kicked him so hard in the head to try and stop this street fight. And as he'd done so, Billy just popped back up again and, mm. as and, you say, uh, carried on fighting. And like we learnt of his uh, later life, no doubt those police officers were quite scared of him and were fighting hard to stop themselves being injured or, or worse. That's the sort of calibre of the people that the Hughes family were. He then met Teresa in Blackpool and Teresa became his girlfriend. He left Jean and the two children behind and after staying for some time in Blackpool, they actually moved to Chesterfield. They moved to the Boythorpe address in Chesterfield, which I believe was one of Teresa's family members. And of course, we heard from John Field earlier on that that was the address where they fetched him from when he was implicated in the grievous bodily harm and the rape charges. Yeah, the police were led to the address. And the, the frightening thing is, of course, Chesterfield police didn't know who Billy Hughes was. They didn't even know it was Billy Hughes. All they had was, his name's Billy, and he looks like your photo fit. You know, going back to the day, anybody can walk the streets and they can move across the country. They still do it today. And unless somebody notifies that police force that those people are there or somehow they find out, you don't know who you're talking to in the street. Billy Hughes was just one of thousands of other residents of Chesterfield and they didn't know what they were up against or potentially what damage he could inflict upon them. I mean, the police would say that in those circumstances where somebody poses a risk, that they used to, I don't know if they still do, they used to complete a form, a 293, which would illustrate any risks that the prisoner posed. And Billy had been highlighted on three potential risk areas, one likely to escape, two of violence and three of suicidal tendencies. And we know that the prison service said that they weren't in receipt of that information. That's not for us to discuss here because it was commented on and there was a report written after Billy's escape about the communication between the police and the 
prison service. So I don't think that's something that we would discuss here. The police and the prison system are government departments, but they're not connected by computer systems that we have just coming in then in the late 70s. So if for some reason that notification got lost, that would be it. They wouldn't know who Hughes was and what his background was. And equally, now we have officers that closely liaise with prisons, which we didn't have then, to try and stop this issue and minimise these things happening again. But as you know, and, and you refer to the report, the police said that they sent it, the prisoner say that they didn't receive it. Simple as that. Well, Billy Hughes as, a, as an inmate was actually quite a well-behaved inmate and and didn't raise any concerns did he as far as we're aware of course that the prison hadn't been highlighted that he was a potential violent prisoner and like many others bearing in mind leicester prison is a very busy big prison he obviously didn't give prison staff any reason to concern his behavior or his escape risk and he was treated like all the others and as we know that inmates in prisons do do jobs within a prison and Billy was given a job actually working in the kitchens. Which, in hindsight, was not the best place for him, as we know, isn't it? His access to knives and equipment which he could utilise, but at the time nobody realised that. And it was one day in December that the prison officers noted that a boning knife had gone missing from the prison kitchens. I mean, a boning knife, one suspects, would be... As it says, isn't it? It's it will be a sharp. It's a very long knife. Yeah, used for, for what it is said for, you know, boning knife, and clearly quite a dangerous piece of equipment. So, despite inmates being spoken to, including Billy, and areas of the prison being searched, the knife was actually never found. No, and with the best efforts of the prison staff, when eventually it was found to be missing, you know, we've got to bear in mind that the prison's full of prisoners who are very cunning, crafty individuals who don't cooperate generally with the prison staff and very quickly uh, work out areas of weakness and wherever the knife went, they didn't find it. And on that morning of the 12th of January, when he went on his journey heading for Chesterfield Magistrates Court, he would have been searched when he was leaving, wouldn't he? Well, it's standard prison practice that uh, inmates coming in and going out would be given a search, and I'm sure at the time and and even to the present day, there's only a limited amount. We've got more technology like uh, metal detector equipment, but then it was a pat down, make sure he got nothing obvious, and... You know, he'd been in and out of the prison before without any problem. So I wouldn't say they were complacent, but there was nothing to alert them to the possibility that he had a knife when he left the prison, which we now know he had. If they had received it, one would have hoped or one would have predicted that they wouldn't have given him plum jobs like working in the kitchen where he got access to weaponry and knives. They wouldn't have allowed him to leave the prison without a greater search of his person to see if he is concealing anything and that's the problem isn't it it's once these mistakes are made it spirals to in billy's case he got the opportunity that he shouldn't have had in the first place and that shouldn't have happened but it did so we now know that billy hughes is on the run he is on the moors the police don't know where he is he's highly dangerous And as we know, he appears at Pottery Cottage. It's the worst case scenario, isn't it? We've got a violent man. He's been charged with two serious offences with the assault and the rape. He's now luckily not murdered the prison officers and now he's on the run. So he is extremely dangerous. He's got nothing to lose and he's going to fight all he can to stay alive and whatever his objective was to carry it out. And unfortunately, as you say, he then finds Pottery Cottage. So Derbyshire police now are in the position where they've got a very desperate, violent prisoner who's escaped having attacked the prison officers. The location where he is 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 remote, as we've described, and they've got the advantage that Chesterfield police who dealt with him, where he has now escaped from, is, is roughly on their area bordering with Bakewell area. And they've got the knowledge of who Billy Hughes actually is, what his background is, what he's done to the couple in Chesterfield. How violent he is, what his capabilities are. And very quickly this situation will be escalated into a major incident because they know that they must get him as quick as possible. Initially do what anybody would do and instigate a search. We must bear in mind that at that time, the moor was 
heavily covered in snow. Roads were passable to a certain extent and very quickly any footprints disappeared and when you stood where the vehicle was, there's nothing to see. Where has he gone and what's happened? And I suppose at that point the police have got to think, what are his options? What do we think he's thinking and where is he heading for? Well, it begs the question, doesn't it? If it happened today and we were stood there, clearly he's thought of an escape plan, he's executed it, he's got away. Why and what is he planning to do? Why has he escaped? We know he doesn't want to stay in prison like anybody, but this is a very desperate attempt and he knows that if and when he's caught, all these offences are just escalating the time he's going to spend in prison. He's making the situation worse. So why is he doing it? What are those options? I mean, potentially when the police are looking for him, when they're searching, he could still be on the moor, couldn't he, in that really severe weather? Well, yes, that would be the first thought, that he would escape onto the moor and lie low. Who knows what he's put in place, if anything, or is he just winging it, so to speak, and making it up as he goes along? But the police are faced with that problem. They've got tens of square miles of open ground in winter. Sparsely populated, as we've seen. And, of course, going back to this time, we didn't have our own helicopter, which we now have shared with other forces. We know that they asked the military to help to provide a helicopter because that was the only way of quickly searching the moor to fly over it and have a look, see if you could see where he was. And even the helicopter had to turn back because of the you know the snow weather conditions. The severe weather conditions, yeah. I mean, the other option that the police are obviously thinking about is he's found somewhere on the moor to hole up, so farm buildings or a farm itself. I mean, anybody logically, the last place you would want to be is on the moor in those conditions. Anybody who went there ill-equipped was likely to, to die. They'd freeze to death or, or fall and injure themselves because the moor isn't flat, it's undulating heather with gullies and you can't see them if it's whited out, so... It's not an easy walk, is it? It's not a, a Sunday afternoon walk with the children, is it? It's it's a proper equipped mountain climbing. Rump. Would you take that as your first option if the police were looking at it? Probably, who knows, because, as we say, the tracks were gone because of the swirling snow. There is farms about, they're very sparse, but he had actually driven past several farms on his escape and before he crashed. So logically, would you think, well, he's seen buildings, would he go back? It's a very open-ended question and a very difficult one because with the best will in the world, they've only got limited police resources and they've got a man who's on the move. It's a very difficult one for anybody to tackle. And then the other thing that the police are clearly thinking is where is he heading for or where was he heading for? And because he's from that northwest part of England, Lancashire, that kind of area, is he heading for the A6 and trying to make his way back up towards Lancashire? And we know that the police were thinking that because they alerted Lancashire police and Lancashire police got Billy Hughes's wife, Jean, and the two children moved to a refuge. So they obviously were thinking that's a possibility that he may be heading his way there. I mean, if you look at the location, he was going generally towards the A6, as you say. Which when, is, when he was in the car. When he was in the car, which is the main road from Derby, going north up to Cheshire and subsequently on to Lancashire. So, again, an option is that is he making his way down off the moor, which it drops dramatically from there to the A6, which is in a valley. And, of course, probably three or four miles from where he crashed, he could be in a populated area on a main road, which is a bus route, trying to get back somehow to Lancashire. So, again, another option. Is he still on the moor hiding? Is he in a building hiding? Or is he making his way down to civilization, for a better description? And he would have access to transport. And that's all miles of isolated territory that nobody could search on foot and a very difficult position but options have got to be followed and we know from newspaper reports that that was at the forefront is trying to be going back down towards the main road but at that time the police can't rule anything in and they can't rule anything out so they're investigating all their potential options yes i mean as we know we've been in similar positions that once you've searched somewhere if they've found some buildings have they searched some farms is there any possibility that he could be hiding on the moor and come down after they've searched. And that, again, we know from newspaper reports was a possibility they considered because some of the nearby farms and farm buildings they visited regularly just in case the initial search was negative 
but he's come off the moor and is now hiding there. And the farmers were alerted, they were all made aware, and a lot of them took their own searches and locked down, hoping that eventually be found. And of course there was a big media push, wasn't there? senior police officers going on radio and television and articles appearing in the newspaper to keep it front page news really well again going back to then we had no internet no mobile phones no social media the only avenue to get it publicized was newspapers radio and television and there was obviously a big campaign to spread the word as as quick as possible to the residents in that area and surrounding them all that Potentially this man was on the run, the obvious lookout for him and ringing if they found anything. And that was main news at that time. And that's the only type of broadcast they could make. And can you remember when we were doing our research at the Matlock Records office and we were looking for newspaper articles, there was a lady at the records office and she said, oh, I remember, I remember this time because... I was a child, a school child, and we weren't allowed to walk anywhere on our own because we were told that this dangerous man was at large and the police didn't know where he was. So to protect ourselves, we had to go everywhere with an adult. The word spread pretty quick, even though the technology isn't as today. But they were encouraged to contact friends, neighbours, relatives, anybody who potentially was in that area, check on them, make sure they're okay, and the police were doing the same as best they could, hoping that somebody would flush him out and he'd be captured. But at the time, he was a desperate criminal on the run and anything could happen. Hold that thought, John, because what we do know is that he'd actually stumped up at Pottery Cottage and Pottery Cottage was the residence of three generations of the same family. So there was Arthur Minton and his wife, Amy Minton, their daughter, Jill Moran, her husband, Richard, and then Jill and Richard's adopted daughter, Sarah, who was just 10 years of age. And they lived at Pottery Cottage. And the setup in the house, as I was led to believe, is that it was kind of in two separate parts. So the Morans lived in one side and the Mintons lived in the other so they had their own privacy as parts of the family but they were all under one roof living together all in Pottery Cottage under one roof which kind of gives you some idea of the closeness of that family. I mean from what we know of the family they were Mr and Mrs Average and relatives all living happily professional people under the roof and very pleasant people that's the theme that runs through the pottery cottage enquiry isn't it that these people were completely ordinary people who'd never experienced anything like this and what happened when billy hughes turned up at pottery cottage i think there were some a couple of axes that were lying about in the garden and he picked those up and made his way to the door of pottery cottage And although the door was closed, it wasn't locked. And he walked in and Amy was preparing vegetables, presumably for their evening meal. Goodness only knows what she thought when she hears the door go and she turns round and there's a very wet, bedraggled, cold man in a suit that's just made his way uninvited into your property. I mean, it must have been a frightening, startling experience. As you say, and we know, that he's walked across the moor three plus miles from where he crashed now to Pottery Cottage. He must have been a hell of a state. He must have been frozen. He got no thermal clothing on or walking clothing, which even then, would you attempt to do it? We wouldn't. So God knows what state he was and how he presented holding axes that he'd found in their outhouses or nearby. And she turns around and he stood in her kitchen. Well, if she wasn't frightened then, she was certainly frightened just minutes later because Arthur walks in from their part of the house and Billy knocks him to the floor and this Arthur's in his 70s and he knocks him to the floor and Arthur is also got a prosthetic leg on um, having had his leg amputated many years before so he's a disabled elderly gentleman and 
The 31-year-old Billy sets about him, knocks him to the floor, must have frightened the pair of them to death. And I mean, as we know from the police officer who dealt with him, he goes from being this ordinary person and presents into some kind of monster, doesn't he? You know, his, his facial expressions change. And, and he, it, it's like flipping a switch. And I'm sure that, you know, in desperation, he'd be hyped up, the adrenaline would be flowing. He knows he's being hunted by the police. He knows what the police are going to do next. And this is the only chance of refuge. And of course, when Arthur walks in, no doubt he sensed the tension in the air and the menacing manner that he presented and, you know, did his best to protect his wife. So from that point on, Billy then demands to know who the occupants of the house are and where they all are. I mean, he was clearly planning to hole up somewhere and he's now there in that cottage. He knows the weather's against him. He knows he needs time. And, of course, he's got to make sure that nobody gives him away. So the obvious answer is, who else lives there? And they answer the question, don't they? And over the next few hours, obviously, Amy and Arthur are in the house in Billy's company, and then Jill comes home from work, and then Sarah comes home from school. And so that Sarah's not frightened, they give the story that, that Billy is just a man whose car's broken down and they're helping him. And then the last person to come home is Richard. So now all five members of the family are back home at Pottery Cottage with Billy Hughes holding them hostage. And we can only assume what their mindset was, can't we? That they know he's an escape prisoner because he told them. They know that he's come across them all. They know he's in a desperate state of mind so one assumes that they must have collectively either said or thought or had the same feelings that if we play along with this guy he's going to sort himself out settle down warm himself up and probably leave at the first opportunity go wherever so let's play along with him isn't it it's let's just pacify him don't offer a threat because we we know what he's already done to Arthur so he's clearly going to use violence if he doesn't get his way and hopefully he'll go away and I think that's what generally the feeling in the house was. And I'm I'm sure that's right, yeah. But for whatever reason, on that first night, that Wednesday night, he separates Arthur and Sarah from the rest of the family and he takes them into Arthur and Amy's part of the house and keeps them separate. And that must have been another distressing thing that happens whilst Billy Hughes is in occupation at Pottery Cottage. I mean, as it got later into the night, they must have known or whatever he said to them that he wasn't going to leave that night. So they knew that everybody's got to sleep at night. He's not going to let them just go to bed and leave them. He's got to take action, hasn't he, to protect himself and make sure that nobody raises the alarm. And that's probably why he starts separating them off. And he also binds them doesn't he? Again, to stop them leaving the house voluntarily or escaping, he's got to bind them, as you say, hand and foot, and make sure that they don't escape until he's ready to do whatever he's going to do. And, you know, that's what he does. And it must have been terrifying as the night grew on and that this happened. Well, over that, the following Thursday and Friday, we know that there were callers to the house. I think some people came to empty the septic tank and concerned associates and friends of uh, the Mintons and the Morans were ringing the house and asking if they were okay and if they'd seen anything. And of course, none of those contacts were ever alerted to the fact that they were being held against their will and that they believed that they may be in danger. So I think what you were saying about let's just go along with Billy and if we do what he says, then at the end of all of this, he's going to let us go. Because in actual fact, he allowed Jill Moran to go out and do some shopping, didn't he? She went down to the shops on Chatsworth Road and that was a double-edged sword in that he wanted things. He wanted cigarettes, he wanted other provisions, but he also wanted Jill to be having a look round the area to see what the police are doing. Was there roadblocks? Um, what kind of police activity was there? And again, you may think that that was an opportunity when she could have raised the alarm but she was on her own. All the rest of her family were back at Pottery Cottage with Billy. If she behaved herself and did what he wanted, would he eventually just move on? It's very difficult 
in the cold light of day, sat like we are talking about it, how anybody would react, isn't it? And of course, be it right or wrong, they did what they did. They carried on as normal. And she did go out. She she did the shopping. She brought the newspapers back so we could see what was in the press. And to anybody else, things were okay. She was, or the whole family were just trying to keep him sweet. And during the time when the family are separated, as I've mentioned, Arthur and Sarah are moved into the Minton's part of the home and are kept separate from the rest of the family. But when Amy and Jill made food or made a drink, Billy would ask them for a meal or a drink to take into Arthur and Sarah. So it looked like that they were having the meals that the rest of the family were having. But it wasn't uncommon for people to break down. The cars weren't as reliable as today. And they would knock on their door and say, could I use the phone? I broke down and get emergency help. So we've got to go back 40 years, haven't we, to what was normal then. And people didn't go to work or they didn't go to school or they made excuses for restricting the travel. So it didn't stand out. It wasn't something that people immediately thought something's wrong here. And that worked to Billy's advantage. And it he, is, used yeah. that. he used that and was waiting, abiding his time to make his move. So I think the next thing that we need to look at are the events of Friday, the 14th of January, when... Billy's realising that the net is closing in and perhaps it is time for him to go. Well, Sally, by now we're on Friday the 14th of January. Billy's been in the house. This is his third day. He arrived on the Wednesday. He's there all day Thursday and we're now on the Friday. And events start to unfold as to what he's going to do next, what his plan they're all hoping he was going to go and been playing ball with him until this point so what actually happens on the friday well on the friday morning he says to jill and richard there's some shopping that i want and he dictates a shopping list to them and if i tell you that what he actually asks them to get is newspapers a camping stove with a saucepan some tinned food with a can opener, beer, cigarettes and whiskey. It sounds like he's going to be on the move, doesn't it? It must have been quite a relief for them to think that clearly he's now planning on leaving, although I'm sure they hoped it had gone before now, but he hadn't. But whatever his mindset is now, it is to leave. And from what you've said about his shopping list, it no doubt he's going to live rough somewhere and have like a camping stove and food to survive until he goes on to whatever he's planning. And that's the preparatory act, isn't it, really? Yeah, and also the newspapers. I think he asks for local and national newspapers. So basically he knows what the police are doing or what information the police have and what actions they're going to take as a result of their investigation and and their inquiries. And strangely, at the same time, asks them to add to the list a gift for Sarah. Because if you remember, Sarah and Arthur are in a separate part of the house and have been separated through all of this time from the rest of the family. Clearly, his preparations were along the lines of keeping them thinking that he was going any time, and, and that's what he wanted to do. From their newspapers that they brought back, whether they had a radio on or whatever to get the news, he must have known the police were slowly expanding their search, and the chances are that he could well have a visit from the police at any time, and that must have played on his mind to, to make arrangements to leave. We've seen references in the newspapers where the wording was sort of to the effect that no sightings have been made of Billy Hughes, no contact from anybody, he hadn't been in touch with anybody, all his associates and family in Lancashire area, nobody had heard from him, and that possibly would have focused the police's mind, which it says in the newspapers. that he, Is he still here? Is he still here, holed up somewhere? And of course, as we know, that was true. But of course, they, the family, had portrayed to the outside world that all was well, which, as we know, had, had sort of put the police and other people, friends and family of theirs... At, at their ease. At their ease, that they'd rung in saying they were not going into work because of the weather or sick, and nobody would have suspected anything. Yeah, so armed with this shopping list that Billy's given them, Richard and Jill go and dig the car out from off the drive. Late morning, they set off 
to go and do the shopping. And I'm guessing that this must be the first time that actually the two of them have been together without Billy so that they were able to talk about the situation they were in. But now, as well as fear, fear of what might happen, fear of what Billy might do and the pain of the separation because they haven't seen Arthur or Sarah since the start of all of this, is there that sense of relief creeping in that is is planning to be on his way you know so it must be one hell of a roller coaster of emotions that they were on i mean in the car when they're on their own i'm sure the conversation would have been it's coming to an end let's just keep it going he's going we'll be okay just do what he says now and hope for the best and hope for the best and hopefully that day he'll be gone out of their lives so suffice to say that they go to a number of shops to get the things off the shopping list. And because Billy's asked them to get a gift for Sarah, Jill goes and buys a book for Sarah, thinking that Billy will give that to her. And once they've got all of the shopping and they don't alert anybody, they don't tell anybody, they get back in the car and they drive back to Pottery Cottage. There is one thing that I thought about that they might be thinking about. If the police are searching or visiting houses in that vicinity. What happens if the police call at Pottery Cottage and go and knock on the door while Jill and Richard are out shopping? That never happened. No. I mean, you could speculate that the other members would have carried on the charade and said, we're okay. The others have gone shopping into town and bluff the way through. We'll never know, will we? And it's fair to say that the Assistant Chief Constable of Derbyshire, Alf Mitchell, he was still in overall lead... But there were local senior officers who were dealing with the day-to-day searches and also the mustering of resources. And I do know that some officers that were due to be policing a football match, Derby County football match. And of course, because of the weather, the football match was cancelled. So they got an influx of those officers that were going to police the football match were now available to assist in the searches. I mean, we must bear in mind that although this was a huge incident with huge resources put to it to find Billy Hughes, the world didn't stop. No. Police work carried on. There was major problems in the county with the weather, people stranded, who knows, and crime generally. So this was a a huge resource that was going on for several days. And, of course, deep down, I'm sure they thought that he wasn't that far away, but they just couldn't find him. So then thinking about what Billy hadn't got to go on the run turns our attention to cash he'd not got that much cash on him so during the course of the day he i suppose hatches the plan he knows that richard's got is involved in a business that's in staveley how far away is staveley from pottery cottage roughly approximately 10 miles so he asks richard you know do you have cash on the premises of brett plastics which is the company where he works in staveley and clearly richard would have said well we've got petty cash or we've got some cash on the premises because then sort of early evening billy richard and jill leave pottery cottage and drive that 10 miles and go to the factory where richard works and he says you know the night shift will be on now because of the hour so he goes and makes himself known to one of the workers because he knows that if he just walked into the office and started switching lights on and looking for stuff that would have alerted the night shift to the fact that somebody's in the building so the worker that he sees sort of says are you all right and the reason he asks that is because Richard hadn't been at work because he'd rung in sick you know just a welfare question are you all right and Richard says yeah I'm fine I'm just gonna go and get some files out of the office and then and then I'll be away so again nobody is alerted to the fact that Billy Hughes is holding these people hostage And he was a manager there, wasn't he? So it wasn't unnatural for him to go to the company at any hour, really, would it? No, that's right. The staff would have carried on the work and said, oh, Richard's in and he's feeling better or whatever. It wouldn't have stood out as being odd. So they managed to get hold of some money. And if I said in the region of about £200, I think I'm not that far off. But then all three of them get in the car and return to Pottery Cottage. And it is now 
that Billy is planning to go. This is the point. It's dark outside. The weather's still not that good, but he's going to go. He's going to make his escape, for want of a better word. And he tells Jill that she's coming with him. And what do you think Jill feels at, at that time? Does she think it's nearly over? He's going, he's leaving. I'll go with him. And if we do as he says, again, this perpetual thought that they've had, if we do what he says, then he'll let us go and everything will be okay. She's had all this trauma for three days. The light's now at the end of the tunnel. He's obviously sprung it on them that she's coming, the others can stay. So if she went, they would be free. And of course, we're hoping that when he'd got clear of Derbyshire, he'd let her go. Yeah, so to that end, he binds up Richard and he also binds Amy so that they're not going to escape. And obviously Arthur and Sarah are still out of sight. So that's happened back at Pottery Cottage. Jill and Billy get in the car and drive off and head towards Chesterfield. But then we're back on the roller coaster because he gets as far as the traffic island at Queen's Park in Chesterfield. And Billy says, I've forgotten something. I've forgotten those maps. We need to go back to Pottery Cottage. And straight away is your relief replaced by that fear again. And I think she tries to convince him to to carry on going, that they could pick up a map in a petrol station or or something, you know, or, or follow the signposts as to wherever it was he wanted to go. But he says now he's got to go back to Pottery Cottage and that's exactly what they do. He pulls onto the drive and goes into the house telling her to stay in the car. So once... Billy's gone back in the house. I think she's not going to have to wait for him for any length of time. So she takes it upon herself to turn the car around so she's heading the right way out of the drive for when he returns. He is actually quite some time, longer than she anticipated. And when he returns to the car, he's wearing one of Richard's suits. So he's had a change of clothing whilst he's been in the house. And again, what does she think about that? Not only have come back for maps, which you, you take your minutes to nip in and pick them up, he was some time, changed his clothing, and she must have sat there, what's going on? And he wasn't going to tell her everything he was going to do. He was going to escape, and she was coming. That was basically it, wasn't it? Yeah, and of course, because he is quite a long time in coming back to the car, she decides to switch the engine off. When he eventually returns back to the car, wearing his change of clothing car won't start and you've got to think about the cars of the 1970s not as reliable as the ones that we've got now and if it was cold and wet and snowy then you may have trouble trying to restart your car which is the problem that they encountered so he wasn't best pleased with the fact that she'd switched off the engine i remember the the time in my car was the same damp it didn't start and she thought nothing of it other than instead of the engine running i switched it off and you wouldn't think anything was wrong in that but of course when it wouldn't start that was a problem and that's one of those flick points isn't it that he gets angry that the fact that she has switched off the car engine and he tells her to go next door because there is a property attached to pottery cottage where a couple live that they knew reasonably well because they used to do odd jobs for each other. Not that they'd seen them during this period while Billy had been at Pottery Cottage. So he tells her to go next door to get some help, that they need a tow off the drive. And initially she's like, I don't want to get the neighbours involved. So he says, well, go up to the road then and try and flag somebody down. So she goes up to the road. There are a, a few cars that drive past, but nobody stops for her so eventually she has to go to the neighbours to ask for help and they weren't suspicious prior to that because like everybody the weather was bad they were indoors they probably saw them knocking about when they went out shopping thought to all intents and purposes nothing was wrong no that's that's right i mean amy used to go and take in their milk so it wasn't sat on the doorstep all day while they were at work but that hadn't been done but they didn't think there was anything wrong in that because it's, it's snowing a blizzard and it's blooming cold outside. So they never questioned that. Suffice to say, at, at this point, to try and get help to get the car started and get it off the drive, Jill does go to the neighbours and she speaks to the neighbours. And it's fair to say that that's when she makes the first disclosure. And she says to the chap next door, 
because he asks, where's Richard? If you need a tow to get off the drive, where's Richard? And she says, he's tied up in a chair. It's the man off the moors. First disclosure from Jill that, that anybody has had that something's wrong. So having given this disclosure, she then starts to make her way back to Billy in the car because she thinks the neighbours are going to help. The neighbour, or one of the neighbours, actually sees Amy staggering about on the path and sees that she's weak and that she falls and comes to the conclusion that she's obviously been injured. So with the disclosure that Jill has made, together with the state that they see Amy in, the neighbours decide we're out of here and they jump in the car and drive off to find a telephone. I mean, Jill must have realised that it must have been odd that she hadn't seen a father and a daughter for three days now. Well, she's back at the car with Billy when they see the neighbours drive off in their car. So alarm bells are ringing now with Billy. Has she told them what's happened? And then Jill herself sees her mother staggering about in the garden in the same way that the neighbours had. And obviously that's shock. It's quite clear that her mother is weak, that she has been injured. And is it Billy who's done something to her? So obviously she gets upset, proffers to go to help her mum. And Billy says, no, you stay in the car. I'll go. And he goes and he ultimately takes Amy out of sight. So we're on that roller coaster of emotion again, aren't we? That she now is more aware that obviously something and something quite severe or extreme has happened to her mum. Surely at that point she would have picked up that something was desperately wrong. Billy's behaviour he wouldn't let her go and help. He went and then came back without her. Yeah, Billy comes back to the car. Jill couldn't see Amy anymore. And Jill is actually out of the car. And Billy grabs her by the hand and runs up the drive with her, saying, we need somebody to help us, and goes on to the road and starts to run towards the highwayman pub, dragging Jill with him. And obviously it's dark and at this point he doesn't want to be seen. So every time some lights appear on the road, he pushes Jill down to the floor into there's a little ditch by the side of the road and pushes her down into the ditch. So whoever's passing in their car doesn't see them. I mean, it is completely pitch black, isn't it, at this location? There's no street lights. There's no street lights at all. There'll be a few houses about with obviously lights on, but there's no street lighting, completely black. And the highwayman pubs two or three hundred yards or so up the road towards Chesterfield. Wonder where he was thinking of going. He takes her past the, the highwayman. There's a couple more houses a bit further up, up the road. And Jill says, you know, I know the people vaguely who live here and the guy's a mechanic. So Billy makes the decision to go knock on the door of this house and ask for help. Can he have a tow? And the couple that live there... The guy who's the mechanic says, yeah, I'll just go and get my tow truck. You come with me. We'll get in the tow truck and then we'll drive down to Pottery Cottage. I'll help you start your car. Before Jill leaves, she looks at his wife and she just mouths, help me. She must have been a quite a state, wouldn't she? She must have been in a, a rare old state. They must have been wet. They must have been dirty. And although these neighbours know Jill, they don't know her well. But they know that she's married. Why has she turned up on the doorstep with a strange man? And he's got tattoos and... Didn't look completely out of place. And then it it must have registered, certainly with the lady of the house who stayed behind, that there's something not quite right here. And she goes to her next door neighbour's house and they, they do actually alert the police. So they take the tow truck back to Pottery Cottage... And he does actually help them get the vehicle going, doesn't he? He manages, after a couple of attempts to pull it off the drive, he actually manages to to get it on the road. And then he drives some way down the road, down towards Baslow, so away from Chesterfield, down towards Baslow, gets the car going, unhitches the car. But by this time, the mechanic is thinking pretty much the same as his, his wife. What's going on here? You know, this lady who I know is married to somebody else is getting her car going with some strange guy that's wet through, absolutely 
filthy dirty and he's got tattoos what what on earth is she doing with him so I think at that point he's already put two and two together and he makes his way back up the road he drives past Pottery Cottage he drives past the highwayman because his house is the other side of the highwayman and as he's passing the highwayman public house he sees police cars police officers all rallying in the car park so he stops and he tells them what's happened and the direction of travel that the car's going in. And of course the police were there responding to the phone calls that were coming in from the neighbours in the area saying what had happened and like everybody else, two and two, making four, this was our escape prisoner, no doubt. So we managed to speak to an officer who was actually one of the officers that was rallying in the Highwayman pub car park that night, and that was Bob Hassel, and he spoke to us and gave his story of what he found. Could you tell us how you became involved initially in the Billy Hughes incident? It, it, it sort of cracked off when he escaped from the prison officers. Yeah, at that time I was a, a DC on uh, Derbyshire's uh, Special Crime Squad, they called it, um, partnered with uh, Sergeant Bill Miller. We, we worked together in a policewoman and Price detective policewoman and we dealt basically with we were the invention of drug squads in Derbyshire there's one in Chesterfield one in Derby and uh, and whatever major incident occurred we were first called to them when they sent for us we were spare people as it, as it were spare yeah DC. like a, a roving yeah resource yeah anything like that yeah, yeah. When the searches were organised from, they were organised from Chesterford and it was Bill and myself, we were searching with a team of uniform PCs, if I remember correctly, farm buildings and farm barns and such like, which when you think about it, is just an absolutely hopeless task to search a farmyard to find some new hiding in a barn. You couldn't do it. Because the geography of the area is Chesterfield's the second largest town in Derbyshire. Yeah. But on the outskirts and beyond, there's moorland and oh. open space and huge It was, land it was only Beely Moor where he crashed the car, which is part of the Chatsworth estate, and it's, it is exactly what it says, moorland. There's nothing there. Where he crashed the car, I would think you, could, you wouldn't see another house from where that car actually crashed. You wouldn't see any buildings at all. When he'd escaped from the prison officers, I mean, he attacked them with the knife, yes. hadn't he? Did he abandon them and just drive it himself? He sort of made them climb over the, near the red line at Stanage at the top here. He, he made them go over a gate... The, the two prison officers who were quite seriously injured and the taxi driver who was very... He gave him some money that he was the only one with any any cash on him, the taxi driver, who was obviously a civilian, and uh, and he drove off on the car and it wasn't many... I should think hardly a, maybe a mile or just over a mile, pushing two miles past before he crashed it. Presumably, everybody thought that he was making his way towards to go back home to Blackpool Preston area where he was from. And the weather was bad at that time. The weather was absolutely awful. So you're quite high up on the moors. Oh, yeah, you were right on the moors at the top. There was um, thick snow at the time, and, and, of course, by the time anybody got to the scene, the footprints had gone. Nobody had no idea where he was. It was was absolutely, completely nothing. No idea. So in that situation, today even, um, as well as then, somebody take command and say, well, we'll start a search pattern yeah, yeah. working out from where the car yeah, was well, and hope for the best really. that's right and we, that's what we were doing we were just searching all these farm buildings that uh, you know they're isolated farm buildings all up the uh, up Lodes Road and the Holy Moor side area up to Beely Moor there and that carried on for a couple of days until that, there was an incident that you were involved yes, in yes this that was uh, later on that week, and I can't remember the date for the life of me. 14th of January. 14th of January. Somewhere early evening, we, uh, Bill and myself, were in Chesterfield Police Station, Beatwood Street Police Station, and I can recall speaking to Superintendent Tommy Hoggett. It said that they'd had this message that the, the woman from the, um, the house there, who was uh, Jill Moran, and, and a fella had gone and got somebody to tow their car out to do it. And I can always remember Superintendent Hoggett saying to Bill and myself, and he used to call Bill brother, that was he used to refer to me, Tommy Hoggett, and uh, he said, can you go and have a look, brother, and see what it's doing up there? And 
I did request the firearm to go with, but it's now going to have a look first and see what it is. Anyway, Bill and myself then went up to the highwayman. We drove up to the highwayman. We got a police car. It was a drug squad car. And we left it there and walked down to this house. We knew which house it was. It was the last one on the left-hand side, Pottery Cottage. As I recall it, we never saw a soul as we walked down the street. Nobody was there. We didn't speak to anybody. And we went to the house and knocked on the front door. We were bang and there was no reply. And then we went round to the back of the house. And I think the gate was already open. But in the snow, because there was about six, eight inches of good covering of snow there, there was red in the snow. And we didn't really think anything of it. We were more interested in the house. And as we went through this gateway, the bedroom window up above was wide open with music playing inside it, quite loud music. And the lights were on. And the next window along was a kitchen window with a Venetian blind to it. And then the next piece of glass along was a, a door a glass door and we could see through the, I could see through the glass door to the right there was another sliding door and there were two dogs behind this sliding door which was obviously the access to the adjoining house which was part of the Moran's house which they would taken two cottages over the handles on it were tied with what looked like a bandage of some sort the handles were tied together Bill and myself had a bit of a conversation which window were we going to break I wanted to break the big door window and Bill wanted to break the small one him being the sergeant the small window was broken <laughs> And he gave me a leg up to it and we, we sort of held the blind up. And at the point that it would have no return, where I was just getting onto the, got through the window and onto the sink unit at this time, I heard a bumping noise from upstairs. Other than that, we'd heard nothing other than the music. At this point, I, I was frightened. You, mm. you didn't know what you were going into. No. In the kitchen, all of the kitchen utensils, i.e. the toaster, the kettle, hairdryer, telephones, and all they were in there, but with the wires cut off. There were none of the wires there that you know, all gone. All been sort of disabled or well, whatever. Well, they've been disabled, and subsequently found out they've been used to tie the people up, you see. This is oh, what, the cable. This is what it tied them up with, ah. the wire cables. It's worth pointing out that going back to that period of time, you've got no mobile phones. No. No police car with a radio, no. because that was... That was about 500 yards up the road. And, and the Highwayman's a pub-stroke hotel, yeah. isn't it? Well, it was a, it was just a pub at that pub. time. It wasn't a hotel then, even. So you were on your own, yeah. unarmed, yeah, 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 looking for what was obviously a very desperate man who was on the run, and you were entering a house not knowing what you'd find exactly. and hearing a noise upstairs yeah. that would indicate yeah. somebody was there. yeah. But you still went in. Well, but I was at the point of no return. You can't jump no. back out again. No, no, no. You didn't do it. You didn't do it if you... Some might have done it, but yeah. I certainly didn't. Uh, I went in and my first reaction, as I've said before, was uh, thinking, because at that time I was firearms trained, was to get me back against a wall. Opposite the window where I went in, there was a stone wall, as I recall it. As I looked to the right, there was a passage went down the side and I didn't know where that led to. A little further round to the right again was where the two dogs were. I could see them, these dogs, they were wagging the tails. They were obviously friendly dogs. And to the left, as I looked down to this wall, there was a door. Immediately, there was the, the door that Bill Miller was still at outside. I happened to look down the passage, and then at that point, I saw that uh, there was a, a Bobby down there, he was D.I. Frank Hume. I could see down this passage that there was nobody there and I can't recall any doors leading off it. So my immediate reaction at that point was that's that's where I want to be going so nobody can, you know, I'm, I'm pretty safe going down there. And at that point, I went and unlocked this door and Frank Hume came and it was, it was one of the front doors of the house. And then I opened the door and Bill Miller came in from the, the door on the backyard and a, another DS there, Graham Rayson, he uh, he was with him by this time. He obviously came up with Frank Hume after we got there. Anyway, I, I said to Frank Hume, I've heard something upstairs. There's somebody moving about upstairs. So he, he obviously would make the decision, we'll go and have a look. So I opened the door and the stairs were in front of this door to the left of the brick wall. And we opened that and I went upstairs. And I went upstairs first and Frank Hume followed me. And as I got to the t landing at the top, Richard Moran was on the, the landing there uh, 
tied up and he'd been stabbed. Frank Hume held his wrist and, and said that he was still breathing, there was still there was still a pulse with him. He says, Where's your car? And I said, the highwayman. So I went up there on the force, obviously the force radio, that was the only communication we've got. Told them there, then I went back and eventually the dog handler came and you know, the police dog handler came and took the two dogs out and then the two the little girl was found up the stairs through this sliding door where the dogs had been in a bedroom up there and she was uh, you know obviously dead and been uh, tied up uh, and stabbed and the the I'm trying to think of his name the father's name Arthur Arthur Minton. Minton. He was in the lounge, which was a long lounge with a, a dining room at one end, and he was covered up with a, a sheet and a teddy bear sat on him. And you, you knew there was somebody in there dead because you could smell the death smell was there. And then uh, that was it. They'd gone. There was nobody else in the house alive. But subsequently, I think it was Bill went down the garden and saw that... Uh, Amy Minton, who was the old lady, she'd been murdered as well, stabbed. I've got a sneaking feeling that he did uh, attack her with a spade as well, but that's by the line. But he certainly he buried her in the snow down there, and that was hence that was the red. Now, we, we, we never knew, and I don't know whether she actually came out of the window, the back window, because she'd obviously got her, her ties unfastened. Cause she was trying to make an escape. She was trying to get out to them. And I think Jill Moran actually saw her mother standing there before Billy Hughes actually killed her. You know, it must have been pretty horrendous. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, yeah. just the scene that you've described. I mean, I've been a policeman for 30 years and retired. My wife and you have for many years' service. And that is completely unusual, isn't yeah. it, to have well, a, such a brutal scene yeah, like that? That's right. I mean, it, occasionally you get somebody who's been killed you know, be it husband or wife or whatever, but to find a whole family oh, wiped yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And young child as yeah, well. Yeah, And did you ever find what the noise was that you heard? Well, we just presumed that it was perhaps the, the husband just, he, he may well have been still kicking his last when Frank Hume mm. felt a slight pulse in him. He could have been. I can't recall masses of blood about, as though he'd, he'd cut his jugular or anything. You know, it, uh, whether he, he died a slow death or not, I don't know. I mean, uh, so, yeah, it could be that he was still... It could still... have been that he was, he was still alive, but there was certainly nobody else at the building at the time, only Bill and myself. There was nobody else there at all. And how long had they really used and made his escape? Some time, I think, because I know when they, they went off in the marina car that they came with the the force crime squad car that there was jeff cooper brian slack bob meek and i think chris mccarthy jumped in and decided he was going for the ride um but anyway he uh, they went off and i don't think they really knew what they were looking for and it, it was a, a chrysler 1.8 that they they'd got if we'd have thought about it we may well have got the registered number of the chrysler because there was a caravan in the garden their caravan which presumably they towed with the chrysler but i don't think we ever we ever pursued that eventually but uh, no it was uh, it was just a horrendous thing and i honestly believe that you know i did a lot of the inquiry after that and Price and myself taking statements as a result of Jill Moran's interview when they interviewed her and took obviously a lengthy statement we got access to that and we took statements from different people to corroborate all this what with the inquiry that we did I'm firmly of the belief still all these years after that uh, Billy Hughes was such a domineering person that he domineered the three of them the mother the, the husband and, and Jill Moran, and, and he just domineered them. They, they did everything that he said. I mean, he even let them go out shopping on their own on one occasion. He was one of these little blokes that was very domineering. His world was violence, and he'd always been violent, looking looking towards his record and that, and that's, that's what he did, and that's how he worked. wonder what's, what made him start... He was sheltering from the weather, I suppose, thinking what he's going to do. Why did he start killing them, do we think? I don't know. Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. Nobody will ever know that. No, no. Billy Hughes is dead and they're dead. Yeah. But uh, you can just imagine, as, as I've said before, I would think that the, the girl, she wouldn't be frightened of him 
and the, the old man wouldn't be frightened of him. I mean, I'm a similar age to uh, to what Mindy is now, and if I got to protect my family, I'd protect my family. You know, you do it, and he was doing it as well. That's mm. what he did, and that's my belief. That's why he got rid of him. A probably first, the daughter next, because. To tell a story that her grandfather and daughter were in another part of the house, you know, he's got to have some power over them to be able mm. to tell them that. And how it appears that he killed them over a, a period oh, of yeah. time. It wasn't a one Well, the two one of, event. Well, the two of them, we don't know, of course. No. The two of them, I would think they were killed pretty early on during the uh, the siege, as it were. But the others, he killed the mother and, uh, and husband somewhere, you know, as he was leaving. Why he got to kill them, I don't know. No. But, uh, God. you know, whether they're having a go at him or whatever, you don't know. Having come across this scene, obviously, and... They'd left, Billy had escaped. The cavalry would have arrived in ambulances and other well, police yeah, and they, everybody else. They came round, yeah. There was nothing anybody no, could no, do. Nobody could do anything at all. The, the soccer when everybody came and such like. What time of day was it when you first went? I, I would think it was sort of early mid evening. Girlfriend, it was a Friday evening, wasn't it? It Wouldn't it be dark at that time? Oh, it was dark, yeah. Yeah. So all this was in the dark. Oh, yeah, it was in the dark. But, of course, it was light because everywhere was snow-covered. Yes. You know, we got the light reflecting from the snow. I mean, that where the house is and the highwayman, that must be one of the highest points. I would have thought so, yeah. Going out to Chesterfield, yeah, wouldn't yeah, it? So it'd yeah, be yeah. pretty bleak in winter. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's I think bleak at the best, best times up there. Yeah, yeah it, was, it wasn't called Pottery Cottage. I'm trying to think what it was called before that, but they did... North End. North End. So you know everything, don't you? <laughs> Sally's, Sally's yeah. got a good memory for uh, all the facts. Yeah. It's the lawyer training that yeah. does that. The ironical part about it was we all went home about four or five o'clock that day after eating a few bacon sandwiches and chips and this and that. And we were back there at nine o'clock next morning. And was that... Yeah, just to, to carry on the Carry job. on the inquiry. carry on the job. It was, it was, we'd done it and that was it. it was, yeah. I mean, we knew that what had happened to Billy Hughes because that had come through over the radio. With, in fact, the, one of the very first Range Rovers parked outside and I can remember standing there near the exhaust pipe to keep warm, you know, because everybody had got doors open on anyway. And it's got one of these with a big light on the top. They had a telescopic light on I remember the top. them, yeah. It, was a, it yeah. came out of a roof. That's right, it uh, came out of the roof, this telescopic light. Like a that, periscope. That was there, that was at the front. As I say, the uh, mobile canteen was on the highwayman forecourt. And, of course, our police car was there as well, the one that we got there. But, no, it was uh, a funny night, let's put yes. it like. A strange night. I, I can only imagine yeah, what it was like. Never, people don't realise that police officers and firemen and ambulancemen have to go to those sort of things. Yes, that's right. And then live afterwards. Yeah, I mean, we've spoke about some of the incidents I've been involved in on our podcast, the murder, and I had a lot to do with the lady, you know, his wife who survived and the effect. And one of the things we've learned doing these podcasts, isn't it, Sally, is the effect on everybody forever. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're oh, obviously, yeah. you can tell it, you you know, you're reliving it, yeah, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, I did on that one because we never caught the people who murdered this lady's husband. And I still think about that. And that's. 20-odd years ago, and victims, families, we've spoke to many of them, and they're going back 30, 40, 50 years, still affected yeah. by the tragic accidents or deliberate murders that people have committed, and it does. People well, don't realise. This is, you know, 40 years, 40-odd yeah. years for yeah. me, isn't it? What a fascinating story, Bob. I mean, it's so rare for this type of event to happen at that scale, really, and that severity and savagery. For you to talk to us today, we are really grateful and I know it's brought back memories, perhaps, that you didn't want to think about. But we've told the story as it happened by people on the, on the ground who witnessed it. We can only say thank you. You're welcome. Oh, my word. Well, Bob's told us of the shocking and grim discoveries at Pottery Cottage. Join us for our final episode when Billy makes a bid for freedom, the pursuit through the Derbyshire countryside and the harrowing end to Jill's ordeal. It's released in a week's time, so please use your podcast app to follow or subscribe to True Crime Investigators UK so you don't miss it. 
Our thanks, of course, go to Bob Hassel for sharing his thoughts and at times painful recollections of those tragic days in the winter of 1977. From Carrot Cruncher Media, our editors are Angelica Dabbs and Ed Allen, and our executive producer is Pete Allen. <laughs>